Hi everybody, it's Steve Weir, Grace Point's Pastor of Arts and Communication, and I'm here to say welcome, or welcome back, to the Grace Point Podcast. At the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast via iTunes or on our YouTube channel. Feel free to check out our website for all the latest information about everything going on here at Grace Point. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step toward becoming a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. Last week, uh, if you were here, we talked about how we are bombarded with words, like day in, day out, all, all day long. A lot of the words that we are bombarded by are telling us messages about what the good life is. And usually, the good life has to do with some product that someone is trying to sell you. So whether it is a, a, a vacation, or it is a, a renovation to do on your house, uh, retirement, you know, some investment that you need to make for, for your future, usually the good life has something to do with something you don't yet have, and it's just out of reach. It's like, just, you know, if you could just get this thing, then you would have a good life. In contrast to that, God offers a good life that has nothing to do with anything that you can buy or any goal that you can accomplish. In fact, um, it, God's good life that he offers to us is characterized by a peace and a settledness and a confidence that I have nothing to prove and there's nothing else that I need in order to have that good life. Um, maybe as you hear that description, maybe, maybe you're exploring faith or you're new to Grace Point, new to thinking about the Bible, and you're like, that sounds like a fantasy. Like, I can't even imagine a life where I feel that settled and that content. There's probably many of us who have been walking in faith for a number of years that are still, we're still trying to figure that out. God offers us a very clear path to his definition of a truly good life. And we're gonna look at that this morning. If you're interested in learning about it, get, grab a Bible and turn to Romans chapter one. If you don't have one, a Bible with you this morning, there are some there at your seats and Romans one is on page 1039. We are in a series studying through this, this book of, of Romans. Last week, we looked at the greeting to, to this letter. This is actually a letter to, uh, to a church. And so last week, we looked at the greeting, and we learned that the greeting to the letter and the letter itself uh, is, is not about the author. It's not about the recipients. It's actually all about Christ. And so last week, we saw that the source of, of the letter, and in fact, the whole Bible, the source is God, and the subject is Jesus. Today, Paul is gonna establish a personal connection with his readers, and then, wait for it, he's gonna offer, I love how everybody looks up when I, when I say that, I'm gonna do that more often. Um, th then he's gonna talk about the core theme of the book, and so this is gonna lay out for us something that is, is gonna give us direction for, for all the, the weeks to come here. First, Paul is gonna cultivate a personal connection because he has not met these people he's writing to in person. 
In, in most cases, Paul wrote most of the, the letters in the New Testament to specific churches, and most of those were churches that he himself planted. So he traveled all over Asia and he was going into cities and he would share the good news, the gospel that we're gonna talk about, about Christ with people who had never heard it before. People would come to faith in Jesus. They would decide to be Christ followers. They would have their lives transformed. And then he would bring those people together. He would train leaders get a church started, and then he'd move on to another area and do the same thing over again. So he's moving over and over and over again, and then he would write to those, he would write back to those churches. After he had left them for a while, months, years, he would write back to them, and he would write with more instruction, sometimes correction, sometimes encouragement, but that was typically the pattern. Rome was different. Paul has never even been to Rome. He didn't plant that church. Probably the origin, you might wonder, where did that church come from then? If Paul didn't plant it, who planted the church? Most likely, the church in Rome grew out of the, the Feast of Pentecost. So some of you will remember in Acts chapter 2, there was a festival of Pentecost that happened 50 days after Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead. So 50 days after Passover was another Jewish festival called Pentecost. And people from all over the empire would, would come to Jerusalem on pilgrimage, and they would, they would come to celebrate. And so what we have in Acts chapter two is people from all over the empire coming, and the people are listening to Peter and the other disciples get up and preach and they're surprised because they're speaking their own language. And, and these Jewish people, how could they possibly know all of these languages? I wanna show you a snippet from Acts chapter two, and I want you to pay attention to how Rome is called out in a different way than the other areas. It, uh, the people were marveling, saying, how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome. There's a couple of things that are unique about that call out there. One is that it just talks about visitors from Rome. None of the other ones talk about that. But, but even more significant than that, this, Rome is the only city in this list. Every, every other area is a region, or in some cases, a country. And so we have Rome being called out in a unique way. So probably what happened is, I mean, most, most like last week we talked about the fact there was a strong Jewish community in the city of Rome that had been there for, for centuries. And so people from Rome came to Jerusalem. They, they realized that Jesus is the Messiah and they took that news back with them and the church grew from that point. So Paul has never been there and so he's never met these people. So he's gonna spend some time now establishing a personal connection with them. And with that, we'll start reading in verse eight. First, he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. 
For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. You may have a footnote there that says barbarians simply means non-Greeks. So he's under obligation to Greeks and to non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So a long explanation, and it's interesting if you count through there the number of times that Paul says, I really wanna come. I've been wanting to come, I really wanna see you. And to the point where I'm kind of reading this and, and kind of like, okay, Paul, let's, let's like get on with it, right? Let's, let's cut to the chase, right? Let's, let's get to the, the meat. Why do you keep going on and on about this? But here's the thing about Paul. This is one of the beautiful things about Paul. Paul is not just interested in communicating information. Paul is also interested in a personal connection. So before he launches into this most important message, this is the most important message in, in all of history, he's establishing a personal connection. He knows that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And so he's establishing from the beginning, this is instructive to us as we have opportunities to share the good news about Jesus with other people. Don't just launch into the information you wanna convey. It's good to make a personal connection with them first. So Paul's worked on that in these verses here. Now he comes to the purpose of the whole letter. And, and the next two verses lay out the thesis for the rest of the book of Romans for, for 15 and a half chapters then. He's gonna unpack this next, these next two verses, one specific phrase, actually. And so this is really important this morning for, for us to grab hold of what he's talking about because there are gonna be times over the coming weeks where sometimes we're gonna, we're gonna get into the forest and we're gonna be staring at some trees and we're gonna be like, I forget what this is all about. This is what it's all about. This is the forest and so we need to pay attention and, and get this. Verses 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. All right, I wanna walk fairly slowly but somewhat quickly through these phrases one by one and we're building towards the last phrase, which is the most important one. He starts with, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, which might sound a little odd. Like, it, it's kind of like, well, Paul, why wouldn't you just say, I'm excited about the gospel, or I'm proud of the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed. He's using a rhetorical device where you affirm something by negating the opposite. Okay, let me give you the example that we use that kind of relates to this, and that is, that's not bad at all. When you say something, when, when something is unexpectedly like you like it, then you say, that, that's not bad at all. That mystery dip that Aunt Mabel had at Christmas, and it looked really awful, 
I ate some, that's not bad at all. Like, that's what he's, he's saying. I'm not ashamed at all of the gospel. In fact, quite the opposite. Why is that? Because, verse 16, it is the power of God for salvation. Let's talk about salvation for a moment. I think many of us who, who are in church for a long time, who have, have heard many, many sermons and read the Bible a long time, when we hear the word salvation, we think of something very specific. We think, um, okay, he's talking about salvation from sin, salvation from the penalty of, of my rebellion against God in the ways that I have fallen short of his standard for me. It's salvation from eternal separation from God as punishment for, for my sin. It's salvation from hell. That's included here, but I wanna submit to you that it's broader than that. Sometimes we get very narrowly focused, and when he says the power of God for salvation, I think he's thinking more broadly than just the spiritual aspect of things. One reason why I say that is because uh, Paul's native language was probably Aramaic, and the word for salvation in in Aramaic is exactly the same word as life. So if you read it from that perspective, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for life, for real life. See, a lot of us are living a life that's kind of a shadow of what God intended life to be because we have bought into a lot of deception about what the good life is. And so, in fact, God provides the good life. Jesus said he came that we might have life and have it abundantly. And we're gonna see life show up again in this passage. We always saw it, if you caught it, uh, when we were reading through here. But he's gonna build towards this idea of life. So I think Paul is thinking here that salvation, the power, the gospel is the power of God for salvation from sin and its effects, but to life. See, a lot of times we we are focused on what we're being saved from, and we miss the fact that God is saving us to something really beautiful. So who is this salvation and this life available to? He answers that in verse 16. It's for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So to the Jew first. So Uh, Paul's gonna spend a lot of time in Romans talking about both the similarities and the differences between the Jewish people and non-Jewish people in the world. The Jewish people obviously were God's chosen people um, set apart for, for him to reveal himself in some very unique and special ways. So that was first. So the Jews will always be chronologically first that God has blessed and shown himself to, but, but I'm so grateful that God didn't stop with that, but that he has revealed himself even to non-Jews. Here, Paul says Greek. If we go back to verse 14, he says he is bringing the gospel to Greeks and to non-Greeks. That's everybody. You and I are included in that. No one excluded. So, follow his logic here. The gospel is God's power for salvation to bring life for everyone. Well, how does that happen? 
He answers that in verse 14. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. There's been a lot of study, a lot of debate about what this phrase, the righteousness of God, is referring to. Some have thought that it's referring to an attribute of God, a a, a characteristic of God, that he is righteous, he is perfect. But many others, and myself, I, I don't think that's what he's referring to here, and he actually clarifies it in this last phrase of the verse of what he's referring to in the righteousness of God, because he, he quotes the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew prophet Habakkuk, when he says, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. We're gonna really camp on this for the, for the rest of our time here this morning. This is, if you will, Paul's biblical text for the whole book of Romans. He's gonna spend the rest of the book explaining what this verse means. I, if, if you're new to Grace Point, you may not be aware of this, but what we do in our sermons every Sunday morning is we're taking a text from the Bible, sometimes from the New Testament, sometimes from the Old Testament, Hebrew scriptures, and we are, we're explaining it, we're looking at what words mean, we're looking at how it relates to the rest of the message, we're giving illustrations of it. That's a sermon. The book of Romans is basically a sermon, and this is the text that Paul is explaining. The righteous shall live by faith. So it's really important that we understand as well as we can what this text is getting at. So I'm gonna do something that I don't normally do, and I'm gonna actually put the Greek up on the screen for you, the Greek and the transliteration and the English. And so, okay, so please, um, we don't do this every Sunday, so some of you are gonna geek out on this, Some of you are gonna freak out on this because you're like, I have no idea what that means. But some of you may have some appreciation for for how these words fall. The word order in the Greek is really important. And unfortunately, the the translation in the English Standard Version, and actually in a lot of versions, doesn't reflect it very well. So what we have in our main text in the English Standard Version is the righteous shall live by faith. Some of you have a footnote on that verse. If you're looking, unfortunately, again, if you're looking at the Bibles that are there in your seats, they don't have this footnote. They have some footnotes, they don't have others. I don't know why that is, but anyway. The footnote actually explains and expresses the Greek better, and it says what's up here on the screen. The one who by faith is righteous will live. Now, At first glance, you may be like, why are you making such a big deal of this? Let me explain why. Because if you take it the way it's written in the main text here, the righteous shall live by faith. It is easy to misunderstand that, as I have actually myself for for many years, to, to thinking that that is expressing an expectation that God has for us. The righteous shall live by faith. If you wanna be righteous, you better live by faith. If you wanna be righteous, you better figure out what that looks like, and then you do that. that it's an expectation. It can be interpreted as an expectation, but if we, if we look at it 
the way the actual Greek reads, the one who by faith is righteous will live. The one who by faith is righteous. Not the one who works really hard to be righteous. Not the one who manages to live up to God's expectation who is righteous. Because there isn't anyone that falls into that category. And so God makes righteousness available to us by faith. The one who is righteous, not by working for it, not by achieving it, but by faith, will live, will experience what life is really meant to be. That is the the core and the secret of real life. So verse 117 here tells us that it's not an expectation, it is a provision. It is what God offers to us as a gift. The result of being made righteous by faith is life. And when I think about what that life looks like, where my mind goes, is to a healthy tree. So right now, all of our trees are barren and you know lifeless, they look lifeless. They're just asleep. But think about a summertime tree or a springtime tree. Think about a tree that's full of beautiful green leaves. Doesn't that sound nice right now? Beautiful green leaves and then fruit. That's a healthy tree. Another Hebrew prophet actually describes this in Jeremiah chapter 17. Gives a beautiful picture of this. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. So someone who has faith in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream, does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. That's a healthy tree. Healthy trees go through seasons of drought, of difficulty, of windstorms. So healthy trees are not spared the droughts and the windstorms, but healthy trees have their roots sunk into the Lord. And so by faith, they stay healthy and experience life. That's what Paul is pointing us to. The one who by faith is righteous will look like that, will look like a healthy tree. It reminds me of Paul uh, writing to, to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, As for the rich in this present age, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So see the contrast here, this kind of brings us back to the point that we started on, that the good life is not about anything that we possess or that we buy or that we achieve. The life that is truly life happens when we give away those things, when we hold on to those things loosely and God is at work in us. Good life is not found in material things or achievements, but in the life that God provides to those who are righteous by faith. Here's a vital truth that we need to understand if we're gonna experience life, and that is that you cannot earn righteousness before God by your moral behavior. 
This is good news for us, especially those of you who may feel particularly unmoral. God doesn't expect you to live up to, Christianity is not a moralistic religion. Okay, we have morals. I mean, God sets out standards and God gives us commands and and rules that he calls us to live by, but he knows that we cannot achieve those perfectly. I mean, at best, we are inconsistent. And at worst, we are a train wreck. And so God is not expecting us, he doesn't have the expectation that we will be righteous in our own efforts. And so he provides a way for us as as a gift and a provision that we laid hold of by faith. That gift is available to us because Jesus came and did live a perfectly moral life, had a perfectly stainless record. And so he gave his life as a blemishless sacrifice so that his perfect record could then be exchanged. He offers that as an exchange for your record that is blemished so that you can have the righteous standing before God that he had by his behavior. But we have it as a gift. Here's what this means. It means that you and I can never boast about our own righteousness. We, we can't boast about how good we are because we're not. We, we, instead of boasting, instead of working to try to be righteous and then boasting about how good we are, we set all of that aside and we trust in, what, in the perfect life that Jesus lived. And then we give thanks because he was willing to credit that to us. And that, my friends, is the path to a truly good life. This verse that we're camping on here this morning, this was the transformative verse for Martin Luther. So I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, uh, Luther, it's from 2003. It's worth watching, it's, it's available on Amazon to rent. But Luther was someone who had, he had such an appreciation for the holiness and the perfection of God that he was tormented in his own life because he recognized he he couldn't measure up to what God had called him to do. And he was tormented by that. He, He was desperately afraid. He understood the phrase, the righteousness of God to be that, this, that God is perfect and holy and he is just waiting for us to mess up so he can punish us. And so he lived in this constant fear until he spent time, he, as he said it, pounding on this verse before the Lord. This is a good practice for any of us who are wrestling in life. Like, what does this mean? And he pounded on it until the Holy Spirit opened it up to him to understand that the one who by faith is righteous, not by effort. The one who by faith is righteous shall live. That was the transforming moment in his life. That was what led to his contribution to the Reformation. Some of you have experienced that transformation in your own life. And I wanna encourage those of you who have this morning, just as a, just by way of reminder, because your righteousness is a gift to you, 
it means that you can relax. It means you can breathe deep. It means you can stop beating yourself up when you fall short. Because actually, beating yourself up just keeps you focused on, on yourself. And the more you set all of that aside and just give thanks to Jesus who accomplished it for you, the more capacity you have to actually be obedient to what God has, has called us to. So, so just take a deep breath and thank God for the righteousness that he has provided for you. If you've never experienced that good life, then maybe you're hearing about it for the first time this morning. Maybe you're intrigued and you say, I wanna know more. Then if that's the case for you, then I just wanna invite you that when we end our service in a moment, we're gonna sing one more song and then we're gonna end and everybody's gonna be leaving. I just wanna encourage you, invite you to come up and our prayer team's gonna be here, I'll be here. We would love the opportunity to talk with you about this. What does it mean to be righteous by faith? Maybe some of you have heard this before and maybe you've been wrestling with it and maybe you have continued to try to earn your way and you've been frustrated because you know you can't measure up to that standard and you keep trying again, quit trying and, and put your faith in what Christ has done and rest and experience the good life, we'd love the opportunity to talk with you more about that and pray with you as well. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the good life that you have provided for us. The good life that the world promises to us is deception. It is always something else that is just out of reach that we need because none of that stuff can fill the God-shaped void in our lives. Only you can do that. And so, Lord, we thank you for your great grace toward us that in our fallenness, in our proclivity to rebel against you, that you provided a way for all of those sins and all of those failures to be washed away in a flood of grace. Thank you for the gift that you have made available to us. Thank you for the freedom that that brings and that that releases us to actually become better uh, and more obedient to you, better reflections of Christ and his love on this earth. So Lord, I, I pray for the one this morning who's still wrestling, trying to do it themselves. Lord, may this be the day that they say, you know what, I'm, I'm tired, I'm exhausted. I'm gonna come to Jesus to find rest. May that be the case for all of us today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.